Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. In the classic film version of The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy falls asleep in her bed, and in her sleep she dreams that a storm comes to her town. The storm's tornado lifts her house completely off the ground, swirling and twirling all around the air until it comes down to land in a particular world that is completely unfamiliar to her. There are flowers and trees and colors like she has never seen before. Unaware of what has happened or where she is or where this thing goes, she clutches her her trusty sidekick, Toto, and you know what she says, right? I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Well, the munchkins of munchkin land come out to greet her and the good witch, and they all inquire of her where she's come from what her story was, and what were the events that led to her getting to where she was. And this is what she said. What what happened was just this. The wind began to switch the house to a pitch. Then suddenly the hinges started to unhitch. Just then, the witch, to satisfy an itch, went flying on her broomstick, thumbing for a hitch. The house began to pitch. The kitchen took a slitch and landed on the wicked witch in the middle of a ditch. And I cannot think of a more appropriate, fitting way to describe the world in which we find ourselves right now than that, right? I mean, the winds have begun to switch, the winds of change, the winds of pandemic The winds of national stress, tension, upheaval, division have begun to switch the house that we live in, our common shared house to a pitch. And now suddenly, all of the hinges, the hinges that previously held all of life together, the hinges of control and predictability and familiarity, the hinges that have held the house together have started to unhitch the hinges of civility, of decency, the the hinges of common good, the hinge of health and safety, the hinge that held it all together is now beginning to unhitch. And maybe the best thing that we can say that is most honest about the season in which we find ourselves is this. (laughs) I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Well, by now, because this is the fourth week of this sermon series, you know there's a word for that kind of season. It's liminal. 
Liminal is that word that means threshold. It's a crossing over, a change from one era to the next, one experience to the next. And this series that we are in is exploring how do we navigate the journey between the already and the not yet. Dorothy has left the land that is black and white and predictable and familiar, and she lands in a land that she does not yet understand, and so have we. In almost every conceivable way, we are living in this liminal stretch of time and space, and we we question where this all ends up going, and so these last four weeks, we've turned to the pages of sacred scripture because the Bible, as I've been making the argument, the Bible is filled with lessons in liminality, wisdom for how to navigate the journey, not just when we are at a national crisis or a pandemic, but to navigate that season in which you yourself personally and your family, maybe even privately in the, the, the space of your own heart are experiencing this swirling, twirling in which the house has come unhitched for you, the Bible has some things to say about that. Yeah. And, and three weeks ago, what I said was that the Bible itself from cover to cover is all about liminality. I said that the, the, the garden that begins the, the story, the Garden of Eden, And the garden that ends the story at the back of the book, uh, the garden that is planted in God's new heaven and new earth, well, we realize that between these two gardens, you and I find ourselves, and it's in between the garden that we've already left, Eden, and the garden that we have not yet seen come to fruition, the garden of the age to come, the kingdom. It's in between the two that Christ was crucified and was raised and revealed himself for the first time as the risen Christ to a woman in a garden. And we imagine the reality that during liminal seasons, God is always trying to plant seeds of the Garden of Eden, seeds of resurrection, seeds of the kingdom that is to come, if we let it grow. Two weeks ago, We said, you know, the Bible is not just filled with individual stories about people who know what it means to live in the liminal seasons. We said that the Bible is weaved together, threaded together by sweeping themes. And three weeks ago, I said one of the dominant themes in the Bible is wilderness. That we go through seasons of wilderness, both individuals and peoples. We go through seasons of wilderness because we're always coming out of Egypt, right? I mean, we're always leaving some form of enslavement, and God is always leading us into an exodus of our own wilderness so that on our way to some better promised land, we go through a season in which all of the vestiges of the Egyptian mind are stripped away from us because we realize that what used to feel so normal was really enslaving us. You can be enslaved to something so long that it begins to feel normal and wilderness is that uncomfortable season in which God is trying to form something new. And then last week, we talked about another sweeping theme in the Bible, which is the theme of the pit. That when you fall into the pit, which is all through the pages of Scripture, you come to a place where you are at the end of yourself. And when you come to the end of yourself, You've reached the beginning of God. 
So living in these liminal seasons is important not to simply rush through it, but to recognize the Bible is trying to proclaim to us that we are always being drawn into the in-between, the liminal, so that God may transform us. And another theme that I want us to focus on today that is weaved throughout Scripture is the theme of exile. Exile. To be in exile in sacred scripture means that well, you, you, you're forced out of your home or the house or the land in which you, you're forced out of what is familiar. And you're, 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 you end up in a kind of awe. You end up in a strange and foreign land where you have no control and where you are so vulnerable and transparent that you become receptive to the possibility of meeting God on a territory not of your own choosing. And in the Bible, well, many individuals were in seasons of exile. I mean, Joseph was in exile in Egypt for a season. Moses was in exile in the house of a Pharaoh for a bit. Ruth was in a kind of exile in Bethlehem. David was in a kind of exile in Gath in the New Testament. John was a kind of exile in in Patmos, And even Jesus, the Son of God, his whole human journey was a journey in exile from his one true home. But of all of the the poignant examples of exile in the Bible, one that's most instructive for us that I think actually has the capacity to shape how we think about our current context is the exile of the nation of Israel, the Babylonian exile. Now, you remember what happened, right? So the Egyptians had enslaved Israel for more than 400 years. I mean, that's what precedes the Exodus. And God sends Moses because after 400 years, God hears the cries of his people. And God is a liberating people. And God does not intend any human being to experience the kind of stacking of worth that was in play in Egypt. And Pharaoh and all the mechanisms of Pharaoh had constructed a a military system, a government system that had enslaved people in the making of bricks so that all of the desires of Pharaoh could be met while at the same time oppressing a whole people. And God sends Moses and liberates them and sends them into the the wilderness in order to to strip them of the the Egypt-mindedness, right? Because God wanted to form in them a different kind of nation, which which is monumentally important. He brings them to Sinai, remember, and he gives them the the law, the Torah. He gives them the Ten Commandments. And then, then you have the book of Exodus and Leviticus, which describe the building of a tabernacle, a space in which they would worship so that in the act of worship, they could envision the kind of world that they were to construct. And in the act of worship, they could become a kind of people that would be different than every other kind of people in the world and then they finally make it into the promised land you remember and once they occupy the promised land one of the very first things they ask for is for a king we want to have a king so that he can rule over us and the direct quote is this so that we will be like the nations of the world 
And then like somewhere around 1 Samuel 17, God says, are you sure you want this? And they're like, we, yes, we do. We want to be like the kingdoms of the world. He's like, I called you out of a kingdom in the world in order to make you different and you want to be like the nations of the world? Well, let me tell you what's going to happen if you have a king. He says, let me tell you, this is exactly what will happen. He will build chariot armies and he will draft your sons to serve in them and he will conscript your daughters to serve the needs of empire and then he will, he will create a harem of wives to make sure that his name continues through the ages and in time... He will enslave you. And they said, but we still want a king. We want a king to be like the nations of the world. So God gives them a king. Gives them Saul. Saul didn't work out too well. Gives them David. David, a man after God's own heart. And David, through his sin, has a child. And then marries the woman who he had forced into that relationship. And has another child named Solomon. And Solomon rises up to be the king who would later be described as one of the wisest kings in all of Israel. And yet, if you watch the story of Solomon closely, he changes from the all-wise, the humble Solomon who simply wanted the wisdom of God, a listening heart, humble and contrite. He changes in time. He builds a harem with hundreds of wives in order to continue his name. He conscripts a military, a mechanism to maintain his control made up of Egyptian chariots. And then he builds a glorious temple in God's name, right? The Solomonic Temple. This gleaming edifice that is meant to demonstrate the worthiness of God who separated and liberated them from slavery. He builds a temple and a palace which was never part of the plan. But the whole sinister twist in the plot is that he builds it with slave labor. This king of a nation of ex-slaves builds a temple meant to honor the God who liberates slaves, but he builds it with slave labor, and God was done. Soon he allowed the Assyrians to attack and conquer the north, and then after that the Babylonians would attack and conquer the Assyrians and the southern kingdom and destroy Jerusalem, completely ravishing the temple and then they took all of the artisans, the poets, the songwriters, the leaders of the land, the nobles, and sent them into exile. And there in Babylon, miles and miles and miles, like a lifetime away from the life that they used to know, they find themselves in a strange and foreign land. And they're not in Kansas anymore. Fortunately, some songwriters went along with them in exile. During the season which God was trying to cleanse something, do something in them that they could not do without exile, and God sends them into exile. And one of the poets, the songwriters, writes their experience down, and we find it in Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, they wrote, 
There we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion, how it used to be, what was so familiar back in a world of predictability where everything seemed right, even in our unexamined assumptions about the world and how things ought to work. We remembered Zion on the willows. There we hung up our harps. For there our our captors in Babylon asked us for songs and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? In, In other words, the winds began to switch the house of Israel to a pitch, and suddenly all of the hinges the theological, spiritual, social, economic hinges that had previously held life together had become unhitched because God was up to something in transforming them that God could not do when all the hitches were nice and tight and all of the life that they used to know, the life of normalcy, was all under their control. Now their house lands in a strange and foreign land. And I just want to ask you to consider, have you felt anything like that lately? And maybe you have felt that way because of some condition that COVID has brought on, maybe with your employment, or maybe students who are now anxious and parents of students who are now anxious because of a school plan that will be yet another challenge and another disappointment. Do you find yourself navigating a kind of surreal, fuzzy, kind of trip to Oz where you look back over your shoulder and everything that you knew which was familiar was back in Zion. (laughs) But now that lies in ruins and you don't quite know what's up ahead. I'm trying to tell you these many weeks the very same thing I'm trying to remind myself of for Pete's sake, and that is this. When you're in exile as unpleasant, unwelcomed, uncomfortable as it is, the witness of Scripture is this. In exile, the heart can be transformed. So for 70 years, they're in exile in Babylon. And after 70 years, man, everything changes. I mean, they become renewed. They become uh, recreated, really. They are reoriented, reacclimated into the world in which they think now differently, not only about themselves and about who should be on uh, the top of society and who should be stacked underneath them, but now they think even differently about the God who they worship because the God who they used to think only resided in the temple in Jerusalem, suddenly, in ways more mysterious than they could have ever predicted, they are encountering the God of exile. Yeah. And the way Jeremiah sometimes described it was, you know, there was a time when God would write God's covenant upon tablets of stone. We know that story. That was long ago. But those tablets are broken, and so was that covenant, because my people broke that covenant. But now I will write my covenant upon your hearts, because your hearts have been tenderized by exile, and you will see me in a way like you have never seen me before. There was a student who 
asked his rabbi one day, Rabbi, the Torah says that we are to put the Torah upon our hearts. We are to put the law upon our hearts. But why does it say to put our Put the law upon our hearts. Shouldn't it say in the Torah to to put the law within our hearts? And the rabbi said, ah, yeah, it, it says to put the law upon your hearts because God knows that life will make your heart hard. And in time, life will disappoint and pain and woundedness will come and your, your heart will break. And when your heart breaks open, then the Torah will fall inside. When we are going through seasons of transition and change and we, and we, we don't quite know how to keep the heart from breaking, it is okay. Because with the broken heart comes a vulnerability and a transparency that allows the love of God to seep in in a way like it never has before. So that's why it matters what we do during exile. (laughs) Now we're not in exile, right? But we are in this pandemic, this thing that feels like exile, and it matters what we do in this liminal season between the already and the not yet. It matters what we do. Did you notice the scripture that you saw read earlier from Jeremiah 29. We read these words. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters multiply there and do not decrease. God gives this instruction to the people who are in exile and says, look, when you're in exile, I know it feels like it's a season where you just resign. You hang up your, your, your harp on the willow, you sit by the river, and you just wait for things to get back to normal. Don't decrease, but increase. I think it's a provocative way that he says it. He literally means build houses and live in them, right? I mean, take wives and give your sons and daughters into marriage, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce. He meant that literally because you're going to be there a while. Get comfortable. I've got some work to do on your hearts, right? But I don't think that's bad advice for you and for me today to, in the midst of this strange season, to build spiritual houses and plant Gardens of faith. To build spiritual houses and plant gardens of faith. That exile is intended to be a time where you evaluate your house of faith. Can I ask you to consider that for just a moment? I mean, sitting right where you are, can you just examine the house of your faith for a minute, right? Or even the house that you share with others, your literal house. How is your spiritual house how's the foundation of that house is it solid and and, and secure so that when the storms of life come it'll it'll endure and stand or are there cracks in the foundation that need to be repaired are there parts of your house that have wood rot right because of neglect and decay have you attended the spirit the soul 
Is it now a time for you to ask yourself, what must I do to build up my spiritual house? Because honestly, the colleagues I speak with, other pastors and other churches, the reality is we are becoming more and more aware of how in the last, oh, in the last century, how the, the churches throughout the world We have created a system in which we become so dependent upon the institutional church that in many ways we have departed from what used to be a reality, and that is that Christian families did faith at home first. And that is where they nurtured and grew and built up the faith of their children and church. And the the public gathering was really a a kind of a, a culmination or a result of all of the faith formation that's going on at home. And so during exile, I'm asking you to consider how is your spiritual house? Is there a rhythm? A rhythm, a spiritual rhythm in which you and your family practice faith where it moves beyond just a prayer for the evening meal. I mean, are you creating a time where worship is the number one priority of your, your family's life and family's week? I mean, don't shame yourself if, if you're not doing anything. Don't, don't be condemned. Don't condemn yourself if, if there's not a rhythm underway. But you start where you are, right? But you don't stay there. For example, on Sundays, is there some predictability in a deliberate way in which you worship with your, your family? Or is it, well, the kids will watch when they get up, and, and maybe I'll watch if there's nothing better on the TV. But what if you were to create a rhythm where you deliberately planned a time where nothing in the universe is as important as this one hour that we share in worship? How's your spiritual house? Is there a time throughout your day, like Monday through Saturday, where you take even maybe five minutes to sit quietly and listen For the voice of God to be spoken over you. Is there a time when you're reading scripture? Do you take a walk in the morning or at night to simply abide with the one who desires to abide with you? Do you talk with your family about the mysteries of faith? And you don't know how to start that conversation? That's fine. How about this? You watch the worship service and afterwards at a meal or over coffee, you simply discuss what do you think it meant? What impacted you most? See, the spiritual house during seasons of exile, the, the ancient Israelites, they had to learn that we can't depend on the temple anymore because we are nowhere near the temple. The temple is gone. But here in exile, we are confronted by a God who wants to confront us and meet with us. And new practices began, new spirituality began in the people of Israel while in exile. What about your spiritual house? But we're called not just to build spiritual houses and live in them, but we're also called to plant gardens of faith and eat what they produce. But I'm telling you, there's a kind of fruit that only grows in gardens that are planted in exile. So can I ask you to tell me something about or to think about the the condition of the soil in your garden? I can't think about that image without thinking about the parable that Jesus taught, that there was this sower that went out to sow, and he he threw seed everywhere, and and some of the seed fell on hard ground, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on thorny ground, and and it sprang up, 
but it choked out the growth because of the thorns. And some fell on rocky ground and it, it sprang up very quickly, but the soil was so shallow that it died of thirst in the day. But some fell on good soil. And the produce, the produce from that yielded well a hundredfold or more. How's the soil in the garden of your faith? Does something need to, 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 to till it up? Do you need to plant new rows by confession? Do new seeds need to be dropped into your garden of faith, seeds of confession and repentance? Does your garden of faith need to be watered with the refreshing renewal that the Spirit gives when we ask for forgiveness, when we ask for reconciliation? Because see, there is fruit that is waiting to grow in the garden of exile. But it means that there, there must be work done in the garden. And the great gardener is waiting so that you may eat what it produces. See, it's really tempting during exile for us to hang up our harps on the willow trees and just wait for everything to return to normal. But if we do that, I mean, if we do that in our own private homes, just resign and wait until we can come back to church, then we will have missed the whole point of this opportunity for God to meet us in the middle, right here in the middle between the black and white of what was familiar and the technicolor of the Oz that is on the other side. So what will you do? See, the rest of that passage continues, and I think it's provocative. Jeremiah 29 continues with these words. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. See, during exile, there will always be voices who pretend to have the answer out. There will always be the voices who pretend to speak on behalf of God to get us out of the crisis quicker. But God says, no, that's not how I work. I'm the one who brings you to wilderness. I am the one who brings you and meets with you in the pit. I am the one who gathers with you in exile so that I can write my law upon your hearts. So don't rush out of exile. Wait for me there. And then the verse continues. In verse, uh, in chapter 29, for thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise that to bring you back to this place. And then maybe the most popular verse of this entire chapter. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not your harm, to give you a future with hope. Now that last verse is everywhere. You can see it everywhere. It's a fantastic verse to cross-stitch on pillows. It's a great you know, bumper sticker verse to drive around town. I know the plans I have for you, plans for your well-being and not your harm. But don't forget what this verse comes after. It comes after a call to build spiritual houses and live in them. It comes after a call to plant gardens and eat what they produce right here in exile. So what will you do? I want to call us 
to a, a courageous waiting. A courageous faith requires that we recognize there is only one who can get us through the liminal season to the other side. There's only one who we can put our trust in and meet us to transform us until we make it to the other side. And maybe you have never heard that his plans for you are for your well-being and not your harm. Maybe you have always gone through life assuming that God is the one who puts you into wilderness and throws you into pits and leads you into exile but then leaves you there. Maybe that's been your assumption. But the finish of the story, this, the glorious finish of the story is that he knows the plans he has for you and they are plans for your well-being and not your harm. To give you a future with hope. So maybe somebody who is listening today needs to pray a prayer that sounds something like this. God, I recognize that I'm in a place that I don't recognize. And God, I recognize that, that I would, in a heartbeat, God, I would go back to, to life that I used to know, to what was normal and predictable and, and controllable because this unknown is too much to bear from day to day. And, and, and God, I confess to you that if left on my own, I would take my harp that is meant to be played, meant to be used for your work. I would take my life and hang it up on the willow tree and just pout by the waters of Babylon. But you, God, you have invited me to more. You've invited me to relinquish the control of my life into your hands. So I yield myself to you. I humble myself and I, I confess that I am yours. Now lead me to the way everlasting. Amen. And if you prayed that right where you are, if you, if you, if you embraced those words as your own, then God has heard you and you have begun the most important journey of your life and we want to know about that you need to tell somebody of that because you, you're not meant to make this kind of journey by yourself so if you have no one else to tell if you have no one else that you can say I just prayed and, I, and I'm starting something new I want you to tell me I want you to email me and tell me what God is up to in your life and where you've been so I can I can know how to pray for you from a distance wherever it is that you go from this moment may Christ go before you to prepare your way may Christ go behind you on the days that you fear and feel like retreating to encourage you one step further at a time may Christ go to your right and Christ to your left abiding closer than even a sister or a brother may Christ go above you on the days when dark clouds roll in to remind you there is one above the clouds who at the end of the day has the final word. May Christ go beneath you, girding you with confidence and removing all forms of fear. But mostly, may Christ go in you, transforming you from the inside out until your hearts beat in rhythm with his. Amen.